Hello and welcome to QIC's QPod Investor Podcast Series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each Monday morning we invite our listeners into our Liquid Market Team's Financial Market Update Meeting to get a briefing on the latest themes impacting the equity, fixed income, commodity, currency, and volatility markets. Good morning, everyone. It's the 6th of July, and obviously over the weekend we had the US celebrating 4th of July. Uh, we had unfortunately hitting 11 and three quarter, sorry, 11 and a half million cases of COVID at the moment, with just over 530,000 deaths. So, COVID continues to be a global pandemic, as we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And of course, last week markets were somewhat choppy. Stu, can I bring you to the conversation, please, and pr- provide an update on those themes that you saw in the currency markets and the macro markets from last week, and what you see over the week ahead? Sure. Thanks, Craig. You know, it was a a familiar story over the past week with better-than-expected economic activity underpinning equity gains, and that's complemented by renewed vaccine hopes and ongoing investor demand for growth stocks. And in terms of the price action last week, we kicked off a strong week with the 10th straight Wall Street Monday rally, and it really didn't look back from there. Um, Tempering sentiment somewhat is, is the rising rate of COVID infections globally, as you mentioned, but especially in the US, something we've touched on every week um, for a while now, but that barely influenced asset prices over that shortened week last week. And while stocks remain very resilient on that investor optimism and the foundations provided by extremely accommodative central banks and governments, the outlook is impacted by that uncontained, uncontained pandemic across many US states which is inevitably delaying the recovery back to pre-COVID levels of activity uh, and as social mobility turns lower, even ahead of the moves by local and state authorities to reimpose restrictions on activity. And this is, again, something we've talked about recently is this tension between the bull case of unprecedented stimulus and economic rebound uh, and that bear case of uncontained uh, COVID spread and the uneven and challenging economic recovery. In terms of how that's impacting on exchange rates, we're actually seeing opposing forces on the US dollar. It's really interesting here because we've got that uneven recovery in the US, which is hampering the rebound compared to regions that have been more successful at containment, notably Europe, Australasia, and Asia. However, what's supporting the dollar at the moment is this renewed sense of US exceptionalism in equities with big caps tech stocks undergoing another surge in performance. Uh, And that really prevented the euro from going anywhere last week. And I think, um, you know, now that we've moved beyond the first half of the year, it also offers up the opportunity to look at those primary themes that are expected to influence investor sentiment and asset prices into the second half of the year, including getting more clarity on the path of the economic activity and inflation and also more clarity on the impact on corporate earnings and the outlook there. Of course, we're gonna be tracking the ongoing path of the pandemic as investors have to deal with more outbreaks and also inflection points in that curve. But of course, a real heightened focus on the race to develop vaccines, which is gonna provide uh, you know, quite a few strong periods of uh, performance over the second half. Uh, the US election is gonna become more influential, but probably generate far more noise than signal. 
of the path for fiscal and monetary policies is going to remain very important, particularly with a number of emergency fiscal programs facing an expiry date, notably unemployment compensation in the US and locally the JobKeeper program, but also geopolitics is going to be important with US and China relations in particular simmering with a number of underlying issues. Stu, quick follow-on question from that. You mentioned how Europe, Australasia, etc., are doing quite well compared to other areas such as the US, yet the US seems to be doing slightly better than the European markets. Do you have a view on why Europe isn't stronger? Yeah, and part of that's sector-related, Craig. Uh, I don't know if Rob wants, wants to talk a bit more about that later, but um, those those growth stocks uh, in the US are definitely dominating in terms of attracting more capital and outperforming. Uh, and... Uh, the financial sector has been one that's been struggling quite a bit recently, uh, which tends to have higher weight in Europe. Um, but it is interesting when you look at that relative performance in COVID, Florida, even Florida alone at the moment has a higher rate of new infections than any European country has since the start of the pandemic. Thanks, Stu. Well, that's a good segue to Rob. Robert, can we bring you into the conversation, please? I know that the FTSE was sort of flat for the week. The US did quite well. Shoes has sort of talked about how, from a, a fundamentals point of view, there could be support the other way around. What's your take? Yeah, so I guess in the shortened week that we saw last, um, I guess last week, um, we had pretty strong equity markets. So most markets were up between 3 and 4%. The NASDAQ, as sort of Stu alluded to, was the star up close to 5%. And as you say, the FTSE was pretty much flat. Now, regular listeners will be quite used to the FTSE's underperformance, and I think sectors do play a big part. It's underweight tech and it's overweight energy. Now, I think what's really particularly interesting there with the energy market or the energy stocks is that we've seen this massive rally in oil, but we're still seeing underperformance. And that's really down to BP and Shell, um, their long-run oil price or the market's long-run oil price estimates. And that's been coming down, I guess, as... Uh, the recovery is, I guess, slowing down. And so that's really affecting um, their the outlook for those two stocks. I guess in volatility markets, uh, the VIX fell by almost seven vol points to finish under 30. And we've seen a flattening of the forward curve. So um, those longer dated maturities have been underperforming uh, the spot market, or at least our estimate of the spot market. I guess precious metals, Craig, um, they underperform their equity beta. Uh, silver was up about 1% and gold was also flat for the week. Thanks, Rob. Richie, um, can we bring you in on macro credit, please? Um, obviously, we had the 4th of July weekend. Did that have an impact in terms of uh, issuance uh, for the week? And how do you see the, see the period ahead? Yeah, hi, Craig. Yeah, issuance was low for the holiday shortened week. And we actually expect lower issuance over July. And it's really driven by three things. Um, Firstly, JP Morgan will be kicking off the reporting season in the US and that'll happen on the 14th of July. So most companies are in blackout period and and therefore will not issue. Secondly, you know, we're into the seasonally quiet Northern Hemisphere summer period and you generally see lower volumes and, and lower participation in the market during that time. And finally, the front loading of issuance this year as corporates really built liquidity during the uncertainty of, um, of COVID. So for July, we're, we're expecting USIG forecast issuance of around 92 bill. And so that's just over half of the one, 169 that we did see in June, 
we're, we're also seeing some pretty strong demand still for credit. So $8 billion inflow into IG credit funds last week, and that followed the second highest ever inflow of $12.8 billion the week before. We're also seeing investors start to invest some of the over $1 trillion of cash that was built up during um, COVID with almost $50 bill flowing out of uh, money market funds last week. If we just quickly move um, closer to home, um, you know, the same themes are actually playing out, but in a slightly different way. So July is going to be a big maturity month for the four Aussie major banks, um, around 16 bill of maturities um, are due to, due, due to um, come forth. Uh, you know, and, and the term funding facility that we've talked about previously ends in September. And our conversations with major banks really um, talk about them taking advantage of that 25-bit rate um, for the three-year funding. So we're not really expecting to see these large maturities um, replaced by any supply. And, you know, so that really points to Aussie senior financials continuing to tighten. And then on the um, corporate side, we still have a number of maturities this, this month. So it's a pretty big maturity month for corporates too. So some of the names, Telstra, APT Pipelines, Perth Airport, QPF, QPF Finance, and, um, Again, we're coming up to half yearly earnings in Australia, and so that kicks off on the 29th of July. So new issuance really likely to be sporadic again there. So this all sets up for some strong technicals again in credit, so helping to support credit spreads here. Thank you, Richard. Uh, we're going to switch gears now and get into economic data, uh, interest rates and inflation. Andrew, I understand there's been some developments in the US. Can you please provide an update for us? Thanks, Craig. So nominal bond markets last week continued to trade in a relatively narrow range, uh, but the real story aside from Kanye West entering the presidential, US presidential race continued to be the improvement in the global economic data. So with exogenous versus endogenous economic shocks, what you typically see is a sharper rebound in the economic data. We're seeing that now. So in the US last week, the US payrolls data continued to improve with US unemployment falling unemployment rate, sorry, falling to 11.1% in June, down from 13.3% in May, as a record 4.8 million jobs were added to the economy, which was significantly above consensus expectations of 3 million additional jobs. We saw it in the Chinese economic data last week, uh, with the Chinese services PMI climbing to 58.4 in June, the strongest rating since May 2010, and much higher than market expectations also. So there's quite a steady stream of data in the US this week with PMI, non-manufacturing-ism and PPI data all due out. So we'll continue to see if the rapid improvement in the economic data can be sustained. While nominal bond markets have been characterised by relatively low volatility, we have seen US inflation bond markets continue to outperform. So in June, we saw US inflation break-even expectations nearly 20 basis points higher than um, outperforming their domestic counterparts. We've seen this as well at the start of July with US break-even expectations up nearly seven basis points to begin the month. So we've had this thesis in our portfolios for a while. We've been long US inflation break-even expectations. And this thesis is really predicated on the COVID-19 induced use of fiscal policy becoming an inflationary and enduring policy shift, um, an increase in monetary supply growth also. And as economies begin to reopen, the pent-up demand will continue to be supportive for inflation expectations. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, Bev, the obvious uh, segue there is around that inflationary shift. Are we seeing in Australia? And can we please get an update on the Australian market as well? 
Yeah, thanks, Craig. It was a pretty similar story in Australia. We're still um, operating generally in, in very narrow ranges here. Um, we did see a little bit of um, Aussie bond underperformance over the last week or two, and I think you know that that you know it's probably not unexpected given that we have seen that, um, as Stu mentioned, that relatively better COVID performance, notwithstanding what we're seeing in Victoria at the moment. Um, similar story here in terms of economic data flow as well. Last week we got um, an official read on May retail sales, uh, which was much stronger than expected, up 17% in the month, and really just confirming what we'd already been hearing from some of the you know more timely trackers out of some of the major banks um, that we've seen this very very sharp rebound in retail spending here not just a bounce from from where we were in in march and april but actually now stronger than the levels of retail spending before covid so a very significant um, uplift happening in the retail sector um, obviously we have to point out that there's a whole bunch of spending not getting picked up there um, that it's related to the service sector that you can only imagine is is still um, tracking well below normal levels, um, but then nevertheless, it, it's a very good, um, you know, a, 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 a data point to, to be showing that we have seen quite a significant rebound in Australian consumer confidence here. Um, in terms of notable other developments for the Australian bond market last week, uh, late last week, the AOFM uh, released their 2021 funding program details. Um, they have said that they're going to be issuing four or five billion per week, um, which is probably a little bit higher than maybe the market was expecting. Um, and the other notable development was the announcement that they're going to be um, releasing a new, a brand new 30-year benchmark bond, a 2051 bond before the end of this month. So, um, you know, we'd been talking about this, that there'd been rumours of this circulating sorry, in the market for a couple of weeks now. So we've got the official word on that. Um, there was quite a big uh, reaction in the market to this on Friday, uh, quite a big underperformance of the Aussie long end. Now, we've got a very steep curve here in Australia already um, relative to global um, curve um, sort of levels. The 10s, 30s curve here is very steep already. So the fact that we've now got this big long end bond coming is probably you know, likely to mean that we're going to keep, keep seeing that very steep um, curve here for, for another few weeks. So yeah, look, that that'll be interesting to see how much demand that is for that new bond. And Bev, just a quick following question from your retail update. My understanding is that it's not just online, but it's also, uh, you know, in mall, if I can say that, sort of retail spending. Is that what you saw from the data? Yeah, so that's been, you know, really quite interesting. You know, it's not a surprise that during COVID and all the lockdowns that we saw online sales, you know, increase very sharply. Um, and, and obviously, you know, footfall and, and traffic in stores was was quite depressed. So we've seen a very strong recovery in people spending in the shops. Um, but what's more interesting is that that online spending has remained very elevated. So we haven't seen that switch back into stores. Um, we've seen that online spending remain very strong um, and, and that recovery in footfall in stores as well. Thanks, Bev. Paul, um, we might move on to uh, Europe, if that's okay, with regards to rates and data. And obviously, we've just heard from Bev there, that long-term bond in Australia. Is there any update with regards to European bonds? Yeah, um, Craig, you know, Stu's mentioned it as well. This European performance seems to be coming through in the data, particularly from France, uh, commented over the weekend from the uh, ECB governor, um, one of the governors, um, Villeroy, the, the French uh, head of the bank there, 
And essentially what one would expect from that is very strong sort of risk asset performance, you know, um, peripheral spreads, uh, Italy, for example, into 168 uh, on the week. So that's like around 40 tighter in the month of June and continuing sort of that path in, in July. But I think what's particularly interesting in Europe is the um, a, throughout July and for the rest of this year, the asset purchase programs are going to continue, whereas debt issuance has dropped off a cliff. So for this month alone, there's going to be 57 billion uh, of spare cash that's coming through from maturities and coupons that needs reinvested. And for the whole of 2020, it's going to be 222 billion of spare cash that needs reinvested into government bonds. So that bid, although one would expect, you know, with um, an improved sort of economic outlook or perhaps not as bad as people were expecting, that uh, there may be some pressure on government bond deals. But I think the technicals are going to remain and keep those quite anchored, actually. So in Europe, um, seeing some good numbers and seeing periphery do well, but also the core government uh, should remain well bid as well. Thanks, Paul. And just for a quick uh, outlook point of view in terms of portfolios, how are you looking at the markets in the medium term? Yeah, um, so from the medium term, you know, as you can really see from what we've what we've talked about, this contagion versus reflation is going to continue. That battle is going to rage on for the rest of the year. Um, remaining quite neutral, duration point of view, favoring inflation over nominals. I think that's fair to say um, as we go forward. And of course, in the corporate credit side, we, we, we maintain an overweight. We like subordinated financials, uh, a lot of the corporate names that Richard's already mentioned there today. And of course, the emerging markets as well are continuing to do well, even though we're actually seeing some very heavy negative flows out of there. Thanks, Paul. Mareka, we might finish off on the responsible investing front. Uh, last week, the Network for Greening the Financial System highlighted that the RBA had added some scenario modelling for ESNG in their analysis for financial markets. It'd be great to hear your view on this and the potential impact this might have on the financial markets. Sure, Craig. Thanks. So, as you know, the RBA has sort of spoken about climate change and the risk it poses for financial stability in the economy a number of times now. The Network for Greening the Financial System, the NGFS that you're referring to, was established in December 2017, eight central banks initially, looking to promote, I guess, international financial cooperation around environmental and climate risk management and to mobilise the financial sector to really support sustainability. The RBA joined that group in July 2018, and now there's 66 members. And the report you're referring to, Craig, was um, put together and released on the 24th of June, and it's the NGFS's first set of climate scenarios. Um, It has a user guide. It allows central banks and supervisors to conduct forward-looking climate risk assessment. It looks at the impact of climate change on monetary policy, and it also sort of establishes further priorities to look more regionally and look at macroeconomic financial stability impacts. Now, they've put together eight scenarios. They're a common starting point for analysing climate risk. Uh, Three of them are representative. They're orderly, disorderly and hothouse global warming scenarios. Five are alternate scenarios. They also took the opportunity to draw the parallels between COVID and climate change and what system-wide shocks can do to the economy. And why it's important for us is they've produced some really interesting modelling on what will happen to GDP through 
transition risk and physical risk scenarios um, over the next century. So they're saying in their initial modelling that if we achieve an orderly transition, we still should expect to see 4% knocked off global GDP cumulatively this century. Now that's the optimistic scenario. Uh, if it's a disorderly transition, they're modelling around 9% hit to GDP over the century. And that's before we even look at physical climate risk change. And the modelling there shows negative cumulative impacts on GDP this century of between 7 and 25%. And so I think, you know, that's why it's really good to see the number of Australian businesses committing to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 sort of continue to grow. And recently you've seen AGL step out and tie executive remuneration to climate metrics. So that's, I think, a really big deal that sort of not really been picked up by the market yet. We we're starting to see super funds, obviously, as well, commit to net zero in their portfolios. Thanks. Brilliant. Thank you, Marika. And um, thank you, everyone, for those great contributions today. In summary, it looks like we're at an interesting juncture for our financial markets. We have this US election starting to rev up and of course, combining with COVID-19, bringing a little bit of doubt to markets. But of course, it's also being offset by these improving economic data, not only on the Australian front through the consumer confidence levels that Bev spoke to, but also that improving economic data. Of course, it's leading to increased inflation. Uh, so it's gonna be an interesting tug of war to see who's going to win this financial fight going forward. Thank you for listening to QPod this morning. Please listen to our next QPod later on this week and have a wonderful day ahead.